Now, you may remember the story behind the uh, the BBC's explosive 2019 interview with Prince Andrew. Well, it's just been turned in, or it is going to be turned into a feature film, uh, based on a book by Sam McAllister, who is the producer, or was the producer, certainly at the time. And um, that uh, book is called Scoop. Now, the Newsnight interview in which the Prince talked about his friendship with the convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein at the time made headlines around the world. Uh, the movie will be called Scoop, which will dramatise how the show secured the interview in the first place, as well as the filming of the interview as well. In the interview with the host, Emily Matlas, uh, the, the prince also discussed his friendship with Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, who has since been sentenced to 20 years in jail for helping Epstein abuse young girls and procure young girls. And the Duke of York also denied having sex with the then 17-year-old Virginia Dufresne, saying that he was in Pizza Express, or that he was in Pizza Express in uh, Woking on the day of the encounter was meant to have taken place. Well, the producer at the time was Sam McAllister and she joins me on the air. Good afternoon to you, Sam. Good afternoon to you. Wonderful to talk to you because I have to say, everybody watched that interview and I've got to come to the book in a second and you have had many other wonderful interviews that you had, I suppose, procured for the BBC at the time. But this one obviously was the pinnacle of your career and I, I don't mean to disrespect you when I say that, but it certainly would be the <laughs> pinnacle of your career, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can never in a lifetime expect to hit an interview about like that. And when you do, it is most definitely the pinnacle of your career. And I do not feel insulted at all. It is a fact. Okay. And did you spend long, I mean, uh, kind of looking into it, negotiating with his people, your people? Because, of course, the BBC is a powerful organisation. So was, was there much time spent securing that interview? Yeah, absolutely. For me, I worked in a different world to most other people. I kind of worked in isolation. So my first contact with the palace was a year earlier via a PR, an innocuous email. That's how it all started. And then I did a face-to-face negotiation alone with Amanda Thirst, who's the now infamous ex-chief of staff of Prince Andrew. And I popped to Buckingham Palace. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't think this was ever going to happen. We'd never had an interview with a member of the royal family. It was Newsnight with Emily Maitlis, one of the foremost interrogators in in the country. And he was in a lot of trouble then, but not the mega trouble he was in later because Epstein was still alive and Maxwell hadn't been arrested. But on the day that I went, I'll be honest, I didn't even tell my boss I was going to Buckingham Palace because never had we had a royal interview on Newsnight and never for a moment did I think that they would agree to do one even in non-contentious circumstances. So I went along that day on my own, enjoyed myself, did my negotiation with Amanda first. Did you do all and the protocol? Did you do all the curtsying and everything else and all the protocol <laughs> that goes with it and get, and get dressed up for the day in your Sunday best? I'm so rubbish at all of that stuff. I know I should be better at it. I used to be a criminal defence barrister and wear suits every day. And perhaps I should have worn my Sunday best. But I'll be honest, I was in perilously high shoes So I almost came a cropper as I walked across the palace through the door. I think I was in leather trousers. Well, they were probably plastic, let's be honest. (laughs) And I think it was a a Primark top and a Zara coat. Isn't it weird that I remember that? But it was obviously quite a big day. And the protocol, I haven't got a clue. Well, you're the first person to ever wear a Primark going into the palace. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely (laughs) sure of that. Even those who might be going for their OBEs, etc. I mean, it must have been a very exciting moment even walking into the palace. But here's the thing I'm thinking to myself. Now, I mean, you've interviewed many other people, like, well, sorted out, should say, interviews for, like, Prime Minister Trudeau, President Clinton, Elon Musk, um, uh, you know, James Cormie, Stormy Daniels, people who are generally in trouble, right? 
And what kind of gets me, as a presenter of a show, and obviously I have my producer here, Ashley, and, and Ruth outside as well, but if somebody's in trouble, be it a political leader, take, for example, right now at this moment of time, Boris Johnson, okay, he's in the height of trouble, okay? He's a liar. We all know he's a liar. Okay, so when you're trying to get somebody on a show like Newsnight, where you have these wonderful interviewers, you know, and you mentioned Emily already, you had Jerry, Jeremy Paxman before that, and people may that you may not have worked with, like Andrew Neil or Andrew Marr, and these people are known for grilling people. How do they agree to come on the show in the first place? I think that you're absolutely right. It seems an insane decision right now. But the truth is that most of the time, people have something they want to communicate. And the starting point is that nobody thinks they're ever going to do a bad interview. And so when they have the opportunity to vindicate themselves or explain their side of the story, and that's the sweet spot as a negotiator you're going for, trying to find what is the human reason for this particular individual, whether it's Prince Andrew or whether it's a prime minister or whether it's an individual who is in trouble with the law or who may have lost a child or been through something traumatic. The thing you're looking for is that human moment, that human connection, their personal motivation. That's different for everybody except politicians because they are factually accountable and they have to do interviews. Everybody else, and I dealt mostly with everybody else, I have to find the human factor that will get them over the line to take that profoundly huge risk of being interviewed on a programme like Newsnight. And that was my skill set. I, I assume, by the way, Newsnight, they don't pay a fee to anybody because obviously no, it's public oh, gosh, broadcasting. It yeah, it's public broadcasting. <laughs> and so they don't pay a fee. But I mean, when you've got somebody like Emily or Jeremy Paxman, as I mentioned already, or Andrew Neil. Anybody who's watched these interviewers, they're brilliant at what they do. Look, they reel people in. They ask them all the nice questions first to get them comfortable, as I would do in an interview here. The, the hard questions are coming soon, Sam, don't worry. Uh, as you would do, <laughs> you make them feel comfortable. And then you hit them with the stuff that people really want to hear the answers. Otherwise, there's no point in the interview. So the people going in, they're, they're like lambs to the slaughter, essentially, aren't they? Well, look, I mean, I say this with, not without irony, of course, that there are three types of interviewee. There are interviewees who have to do it, who are in government. There are interviewees like me who have something they're plugging, a book, a film, something that they're trying to sell, a product. So we want to do it and we're grateful for your time to help us with selling something. And then in the middle, there's a very unusual interviewee. And that's he or she who wants to have a conversation with the public in some way because they're in trouble or they have something they feel passionately about that they want to say. And that one is the most unusual. And that was Prince Andrew. He was in that unusual situation. James Comey had a book. You know, Stormy Daniels had a book. You're in a head of state. You're doing interviews to push your geopolitical view to the world. But he didn't have any of those things. And he, in my view, felt that he could and would vindicate himself. And that's what makes this interview so unusual. At the time of the interview, you would have had to go for a pre-interview, I assume, uh, to the palace uh, with Emily and with the uh, the executive director or editor of the programme or whoever it happened to be. I mean, you would have imagined that he would have brought somebody, his lawyer with him or somebody, a spin doctor or somebody that he would have trusted. But instead, he brought Beatrice, his daughter. That must have been very awkward because, I mean, a lot of the questions you were going to be asking were of a very sexual nature. A bit awkward when his daughter's sitting there. Well, the only thing worse than negotiating in Buckingham Palace with an actual member of the royal family face to face, three feet away about sexual impropriety is absolutely doing so in front of his young daughter. Now, I'm a criminal defence barrister by trade, 
So I'm used to being put into rooms randomly with alleged, I put in brackets, murderers, rapists, paedophiles, you know, I have a very, very strong backbone and I'm used to jeopardy and difficulty. But this, I mean, imagine being in Buckingham Palace, the three of us there, Emily Maitlis, as you've described, mm. and my deputy editor, Stuart McLean, and on his side, Amanda Thirsk, his chief of staff, in a tiny room, and now we're sitting opposite his daughter, Princess Beatrice, to talk about sexual impropriety and paedophilia. It is not ideal. Uh, why was she there? I mean, what, what, did she volunteer us have to come? Did he ask her to be there? Or did, did she just happen to be hanging around the palace that day? I mean, what was the reason for her being there? I mean, I inferred two things. First, that they had some kind of engagement that day and she had happened upon this information that he was about to meet with Emily Maitlis and myself and Stuart for Newsnight, which obviously probably made her somewhat nervous. And second of all, she obviously is a loving daughter and regardless of what he's accused of, and I have another interview in the book with somebody whose father is accused of far worse crimes, like murder of an epic scale during the Holocaust, Nobody wants to believe these things about their father. And she was in there, I would say, as a human daughter to try and protect his interests and to listen what we had to say and to percolate it on his behalf. Because ultimately, she could have brought an end to the whole interview because as a daughter, he would have listened to her. So she could have turned around after you had gone off and said, I think this is a bad idea, Dad. You better not do this. Well, my view was the second she came around the corner, obviously I've calibrated. You can tell I'm quite boisterous. My calibration was he was going to be a boisterous prince and I could be quite robust with him and direct. And obviously creating trust is everything and the bond and the connection. But when she arrived, suddenly, while everybody else is probably thinking, oh, Princess Beatrice, let's not bother with her so much. We need to talk to Prince Andrew. She was the rainmaker. And the reason why is this, exactly the reason you've just articulated. Imagine a theoretical meeting afterwards where the Queen turns to Prince Andrew, her favourite son, who she seems to have a little... soft spot for, for. yeah. Maybe, exactly. not, maybe not anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, definitely, definitely, definitely a soft spot. <laughs> um, or a blind spot or worse, I would say. Yeah. And she says to him, Andrew, darling, how do you think it went? And he will go, I imagine, in my head, in that second calibration that I have to make. Oh, it was amazing, Emily, mate, this is incredible. Stuart was amazing, Sam was fantastic. Has to do it, best idea ever. And then, Niall... Then she turns to Beatrice, and I knew they had a close relationship. I'd actually researched her, thankfully, before I turned up, because I do a lot of research before I arrive, and asks her, the sensible one, what do you think, Beatrice? And in that second that she walked down the corridor towards me, it's about 10 seconds that I've got to change my calibration. I believe that she was the rainmaker, because the queen would ask the sensible one what to do. And her answer, I don't know what it was, I wasn't there, but I knew her answer was everything. Yeah, so it must have been, yes, Dad should do this. It's going to make a big difference. Now, let's talk about the interview itself. You would have been there in the room when everybody was watching that interview. And, of course, we saw it after it had been recorded. It didn't go out live at the time. So, I, I, But I'm assuming there was conditions within the interview. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering in the BBC Sorry, or in Newsnight... Did you just say I assume there were conditions? No, when I, say, when I say conditions, I assume Newsnight wouldn't have allowed too many conditions whereby there would be no limit on what questions should be asked. Yeah, we had no conditions. And so my bottom line as a negotiator is a condition and I'm out. I've lost a lot of interviews over it and not everybody does it, but no conditions. 
or we don't do the interview. In other words, I, you can't ask me about this or you, oh, I'd rather you didn't ask me about that for legal reasons or, or don't ask because I'm assuming you have your own barristers and solicitors at the BBC that would go through everything and make sure there's certain things Absolutely. you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And when you sat there and you listened to him say, for example, say, you know, for medical reasons that he didn't sweat or that he had never met Virginia Giuffre, I mean, those moments, you know they're front page next day and, and you're well aware of that because you're in the business. I mean, they must have been... <laughs> did you smile at those moments? Because I know smiling in the palace is probably the best thing to do when he's saying something wrong. <laughs> well, as a producer, half of your job is not laughing, smiling, coughing, whatever noise it is that you're going to make. Yeah, I heard you were belching, men- by the way. I heard you were belching. <laughs> I, was a, I, was a little, I get a little bit burpy when I'm nervous, but then what can I say? I'm just honest. We didn't hear it. You're all tell. right. We didn't hear it, Sam. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. Maybe when you ask those tricky questions now, get ready for the burp. Um, so you have to remember the thing that's fascinating about this from my point of view as a producer is the space between what usually happens on a briefing call when one of your lovely producers calls the guest. And we say all kinds of things on the briefing call, all kinds of indiscretions. And then we get to air and we say none of it. Now take this to the nth degree. We have been there on the Monday. We have heard the things that you heard on air for the first time on that Monday, I was three feet maximum from him, probably two, when he uttered the Pizza Express alibi and the no sweat. He told us that face to face. Did I think it would make it to air those days later on the Thursday when the camera started rolling? Not in a moment. So sitting there, the shock for me, 15 feet behind him in that room, was hearing the things I never thought would make it to air on camera for the nation to behold. And the next day, of course, these all appeared on the front page of every single paper. I mean, that's great gratification for you as a producer of the show and also for Emily as well as the presenter of the show and the BBC as a whole. I mean, but I mean, the BBC, of course, or anti as it used to be called or coined by Terry Wogan many, many, many years ago, I mean, was a great supporter of the Royals for many years. It, it is bizarre when we see now what's happening that the BBC are quite willing to out them. Well, I think that there's an interesting thing that went on there. There's two things. First of all, the Newsnight kind of functions as a weird little satellite place where we're sort of a bit of a pain in the bum and we're doing things all the time and we sort of do our own thing and we don't really conform to what the rest of the BBC is doing, to be honest. And on a personal level, I am the ultimate epitome of that. I've never dealt with the royal family. I don't know anybody in those circles. We've never had a royal interview. I've got nobody in the establishment I'm worried about offending or a garden party I'm going to be uninvited to. <laughs> that, is not, that is not my life. So I feel there is a certain rhythm usually between, for example, this is not meant as a criticism, it's just a fact. If you're a royal correspondent and you're trying to negotiate that interview, of course, you've got a lot at stake. I had nothing to lose and I didn't conform to the normal rules. And I think that's what he liked about me. And I think it's also why we got the interview. But I think that usually there is a certain understanding between the royal family and all broadcasters. But there was no understanding between us and them. And there was no understanding between me and them at all. And when the interview finished and the camera stopped rolling and everybody takes out their earpiece and, you know, on the hooks and most people go, OK, that went well, didn't it? What was, it? what was his reaction? He couldn't have gone, well, that went well, didn't it? I mean, he really couldn't have said that because he must have known that he had hung himself out to dry. Well, it's something I call the royal delusion. And I think that Andrew is the epitome of that, for better or worse. I don't mean it rudely. But imagine the lifestyle he's had. It's not like us, Niles. He hasn't been knocked back for a job, criticised, told he's rubbish, 
failed left, right and centre. He has been sucked up to his entire life and had every privilege in the world. And so, unbelievably, as I lifted my eyes from the floor and my other situations going on in terms of sweating, because I do sweat, and surveyed the room, an extraordinary schism was taking part. On one side, you had the journalists and the people in that situation, all of whom are going, oh, my God, oh, my God, we need to get out of here. This is incredible. Oh, my God. I can't Rubbing their hands with glee. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, and yeah. also with trepidation, but we're never going to get that to air, right? We're going to get that to air. That's never going to happen. And then separately, there stands Prince Andrew with a big smile on his face. And in that second, I realized something extraordinary, that he thought it had gone really well, so well <laughs> that he offered us a tour of the palace. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did you... Do you feel guilty? And I'll tell you why I'm saying this. I remember going back about, oh, 10 years ago, I had a local councillor or politician here in Ireland had said something in relation to, and he used the term black Africans, that he wouldn't house them or something like that. I can't remember what it was. And he had written me an email and wanted an interview on the show because he wanted to get this out. And I said, oh my God. So I brought him in because I knew this was the end of his political career. So I brought him in and as I was interviewing him, he was repeating everything he had said in the email. And I'm thinking front page, which it did end up on the front page the next day. But I went out for a smoke halfway through the show uh, for a break. And he said, do you mind if I join you? And I said, no, 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 come on. So I brought, And as I was having a cigarette outside, I said, I, I actually felt sorry for him. I said, are you sure you don't want to retract your statement and apologise when we go back in after the break? God bless you. Because <laughs> I just, I felt an element of guilt that this guy is going to lose his job, which he did. Uh, the following day, he had to resign. And he came back in the air and I went to the break and I came back and I said to him, you know, I said, you know, if you want to apologise, you can. I will give you that opportunity. And he says, no, on my dying day, he said, I will never apologise for what I've just said. The following day, of course, he was in the newspaper apologising. So was there an element <laughs> when you were getting that tour of the palace going in the back of your mind? I'm really not interested in what he's showing me here. I just can't believe he's done all this. Well, actually, funnily enough, I declined going on the tour of the palace for exactly the reason that you have just described. Because of my fatal flaw, which is that I always have to give truthful answers. It's a real problem. I've been a lawyer and I've been a journalist. It's been a nightmare. I couldn't face that tour. Now, Emily had to go because she is the presenter and you know the presenter. That's the job to be, you know, the professional person that goes on the tour and listens to whatever it is he wants to say. But with cold dread, because he and I had such a rapport and we'd spoken before the interview for, for about 10 minutes before Emily had arrived, because that's the producer's job, I knew he'd ask me how it went. And I couldn't face that question now. Why could you not? You what? couldn't answer it dishonestly. I couldn't, I couldn't answer it. I couldn't answer it. I couldn't answer it. Now, Emily, of course, you know, the ever the consummate professional, she can answer it saying, oh, well, you know, sir, I think, you know, you did very, you did very quick. I can't do that. They're going to love you. <laughs> I, had, I, had to, I had to get out of Dodge. So, you know, I declined going on that tour and Emily did a fantastic job because those photos that you now see in the press that are infamous of the two of them strolling down the corridor, they were done after that absolute horror show of an interview took place. And you look at his face. He's smiling. The face, he is smiling. <laughs> he is smiling.
I mean, now you've got to the point, this interview, of course, was in 2019. We all see what's That's happened. Right. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, Virginia Giuffre got a settlement out of court. Because Maxwell is in mm-hmm. jail. Jeffrey Epstein is dead, mm-hmm. uh, who he said he didn't really have a relationship with. But mind you, it was, it's quite odd that he still said he was his friend. Uh, he didn't I think, He didn't regret their friendship, which was quite odd. No, he, he thought he was a very good business contact. One of the worst answers ever until the next worst answer ever. <laughs> yeah, but so that, when that, that's done now, that's, as you said, the pinnacle. So is it difficult now as a producer to say, you know, what can I get that's going to be better than that? I mean, because ne- always you're looking for that target or that pinnacle all the time. So you've kind of got to that already. Yeah, I, I mean, I was basically a bit done for. After that interview happened, I did have an extraordinarily successful interview with Prince Albert of uh, Monaco, which I did with uh, my colleague and friend Yalda Hakim on BBC World that hit you know, global headlines galore. But, but you're right, it was the pinnacle. And I actually don't work at the BBC anymore and I don't work in that job anymore because there is a point at which you have to say to yourself, you know, you've been chasing extraordinary dreams in terms of interviewees for a decade. You've hit this, the jackpot. And what are you going to do to have that feeling again? And, and to be frank, I was realistic that that was the moment of my career that was extraordinary beyond belief. And so I looked for something new to do. Okay. And of course, the book is out now, by the way, for those who want to purchase it. It's called Scoop. And it talks about not just this particular interview, but many other interviews that you had procured for the BBC over time and how you did that, the background in relation to these particular interviews. But not only that, the screenwriter Peter Moffat is now adapting the book into a movie. And That's correct. Yeah, you must be really excited about this now. I, I don't really know what, how this has happened to me. I have to be honest. I mean, a year ago, I was still at the BBC. Um, it was made clear to me, I don't say this with any particular tone, but just factually that if I wanted a book, I needed to leave. And so I did. And I wrote it um, after I left at the end of last year, over a couple of months. Fast forward, I've now got somebody who just worked with Brian Cranston and now they're stuck with Sam McAllister. Mm. I mean, I'm very apologised to Peter Moffat, but it, it, <laughs> it's it, the, on the level of surrealness of this experience for me, Niall. I mean, this is a whole next level of surreal and um, it's just uh, I've been incredibly, incredibly lucky. I mean, there's already been a suggestion that Hugh Grant might play the prince. Um, that's been a suggestion. I don't, I don't know where that suggestion came from. Any ideas? Oh, I wish it were. It's, I'm afraid it's a. I'm afraid it's a rumor because casting hasn't started. But what a glamorous rumor! Okay, and the, well, then I mean, who's going to play Sam McAllister? Who are you hoping for? <laughs> well, here's the thing: you do that as a game, don't you, with your friends? But you don't believe it's ever going to be actually true. So my friends have proffered these suggestions. Um, some I like still, and some I don't. Um, and um, everyone from uh, Kate Winslet was one of the suggestions. Uh, okay, Charlie Theron I like that person a great yeah, deal yeah okay yeah. Like yeah, yeah I can see that I yeah. think they yeah I think they have a drink for them uh, Nicole Kidman yeah and uh, a, a member of the public upon seeing my photo one time suggested Charlie Sheen in drag so oh, what, what you about take that, your pick what about that, that actress in um, oh you're not allowed to say the word actress anymore what about that actor in uh, the Suicide Squad what's her name again oh, Ashley what Ma- oh, Margot Robbie, yeah. Isn't she? Hello. Become quite yeah, I'm, I'm just well, saying, I mean, when they're looking for somebody blonde, I, I maybe, maybe I'm stereotyping <laughs> now. No, no, no. You've said it now. I'm taking the compliment and I'm running with it. Thank <laughs> okay. you very much. Let's go for Margot Robbie. That's a great idea. Oh, casting director. It sounds like a wonderful book. Finally, before you go, because I know you just told me now you're not with the BBC anymore, so I'll ask you one final question about the BBC. I mean, the BBC was always a paragon of conservatism for many, many, many years. 
And lately, it is now a paragon of a liberal... Uh, it's for the libertarians. So, I mean, why do you think the BBC has changed? That There has been quite a lot of criticism about the BBC over the last maybe five or ten years. Do, do you believe it's changed much? I, I do believe it's changed. And I never want to be a person who leads organisation that gave them many opportunities and be critical and bitter. But I do think, factually, you're right, it has changed. And the reason I would say is this. When I arrived about 15 years ago, impartiality was the Hippocratic Oath at the BBC. It was important in everything, and it was very clear that you should keep your personal opinions to yourself. And latterly, in the culture that we live in, that's not how things work. People give their opinions relentlessly and constantly in workplaces. And even at the BBC, once the paragon of keep your opinions to yourself, that has an effect. And so I think we're seeing a diminution in impartiality brought about by current cultural situations. And I think that's in the shape. And, and do you think the BBC sometimes are afraid to challenge those cultural changes? I think it's very hard to challenge them. I've been somebody who's managed people before, and I'm sure you know yourself with people on your team. Sometimes they say opinions that they believe are facts and they can be about very contentious issues. And all of us are frightened in our life and in our workplaces of coming across in a way that may seem regressive, conservative, traditional, prejudiced. And I think those conversations are played out in every workplace across the land. It's not the BBC. It's our whole country. It's our nation. And I think they are hard questions to deal with, but you don't deal with them at your peril. Well, look, the book is called Scoop. It's available from all the usual outlets and Amazon and everywhere else online. It's a wonderful read, by the way, for anybody. I haven't got to read it all really yet, kind. Sam, but I did have a quick scooch through. Uh, but it's a wonderful read. And it's going to be a movie. Uh, the movie, I assume, is going to be called Scoop too, by the way, is it? Yeah. Well, the book is actually, forgive me, it's called Scoops with an S. So oh, sorry, Scoops, I do apologise. I do apologise. But you're right. You're absolutely right. The film is called Scoop. We've just taken the S away. So nice and easy to remember, I hope. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the book. It's been so lovely speaking to you. You too. Listen, thank you very much indeed, Sam McAllister. Thanks for coming on the show today. There you go. Get the book. It's called Scoops. Sam, my apologies. Scoops. The movie is called Scoop. The book is called Scoops. And it's all about the background of getting these interviews. And obviously from working in media, I have a very good understanding of how that all happens. And it's amazing because for people who work in media, that's just a job. Uh, but everybody else can just sees the, the result on the screen or on your radio or whatever it happens to be. But for other people in the background, there can be an awful lot of work involved in getting somebody on the air. And obviously with the BBC, as I mentioned, even though generally you're interviewing people who've done something wrong because that's the reason you want to interview them. Unfortunately, you know, when you're in the national broadcaster, it's a lot easier to get those people. But unfortunately, when you're on independent media, it's a lot more difficult because they don't have that same obligation, particularly politicians, to come on the air. Although they should. I believe they should anyway. 